Migration Conversations is a podcast that invites persons to share their migration stories. Hosted by myself, Professor Jamie Liu, each episode is an in-depth conversation with people who have experienced the Canadian immigration system or other migration regimes up close. We talk to migrants, immigrants, lawyers, policymakers, advocates, and experts. We hope that these conversations shed light on the challenges migrants face through their own voices. Welcome to a special series of podcasts I am doing as a Fulbright Visiting Scholar at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. This episode, I am in conversation with Noelani Gujir Ka'opua. Born to young activists and UH graduates, Noelani grew up around Hawaii communities and movements organizing around evictions, environmental degradation, and economic injustice. Now a professor in political science at the College of Social Sciences, University of Hawaii at Manoa, her work focuses on documenting, theorizing, and practicing Hawaiian sovereignty, and invests her time and energy into education and the Aina nurturing critical thinkers and doers. Her book, Nawahina Koa, Hawaiian Women for Sovereignty and Demilitarization, is a collaboration with four activist elders who helped catalyze Hawaiian movements of the late 20th century. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. Um, it's a overcast here in Honolulu. Um, and before we get to your work, I wanted to um, give you a chance to talk about who you are, where you're from, and why you focus your work on, on your community and indigenous feminisms. Aloha, wau o noi lani kere kaopua, he kama na keia mokukuni nei o o ahunui alua. My name is Noi, as you said, and we're sitting here in the ahupua'a of Waikiki. So a lot of folks know Waikiki just as like the tourist destination, but the ahupua'a, which is both a land division and a, a traditional social and economic system that was a way that our ancestors shared resources in a sustainable way. And so this Ahupua'a goes all the way from Waikiki Beach all the way up to the mountains and we're here next to Kanewai Stream. And um, I grew up on this island. I didn't grow up in this Ahupua'a, but I did grow up on the Ko'olau side, mostly in He'eia. One thing I like to share about that place where I grew up and that, that nurtured me is that um, it was right on Kaneohe Bay. Kaneohe Bay is a huge bay here on Oahu where we used to play and um, take my our dog down to run through the waters. And when we would go down to the bay, there were um, one side of us the military base, the Marine Corps Air Station. And at that time, you could always hear the jets revving engines. And, you know, it was sort of one vision of what our land could be used for and what Hawaii was valued for. And on the other side was um, what I didn't know at the time was actually a ancestral fish pond, a traditional fish pond. I believe it's about 70 acres. It's He'eia fish pond, but at the time it was completely overgrown in mangrove. We just kind of would step up to these old walls out of which mangrove was growing and like, what is this? 
here mm -hmm. we knew it was something from um, our kupuna but you know didn't quite know exactly anyway now fast forward almost 50 years um, it's been restored by amazing folks in the community as a place of producing food and you know community health so growing up alongside those two things juxtaposed with each other you know i really got to see the potential futures as well for hawaii what hawaii could be and um one would be you know continued strategic military base for empire and the other could be this source of sustainable community health for kanaka and our other ohana who are now here residing in the islands the path that i've chosen has been you know to feed that second vision mm -hmm. <laughs> of what hawaii could be well, I have to say that your work thus far has been definitely nourishing for that. I want to just say that I absolutely loved reading your collaborative work. It was very inspiring, um, the work of Na Wahani Koa. And looking at the archival material you were able to insert, it was so interesting to read about the intimate lives of very interesting four strong women but also inspiring given the leadership and courage that they displayed in very different ways. I wanted to, to ask you, how did this project get started? How was it conceived? Who are the four women you worked with in this book? And why did you choose the form of narrative to share their work in Aloha Aina? Yeah, mahalo for these uh, questions. So this book features four Hawaiian women who have dedicated their lives to community-based organizing and activism for protection of lands and health of communities, particularly against militarization, but also against rampant overdevelopment by luxury housing and resorts, the ultra-wealthy who have come to site, yeah. you know, their homes or second homes or third, fifth homes here in Hawaii. So these are women who are basically baby boomer generation women. They are the second generation of Kanaka to live their entire lives under U.S. occupation. So it was their parents' generation who were the very first to be born in the time when Hawaii is under U.S. occupation. And all of them, you know, sort of came of age around the Vietnam War era, right? Mm -hmm. And so what the four of them have in common is that they all uh, participated in the early landings on Olave island in our archipelago that was utilized by the U.S. Navy for many, many years as a target um, yeah. for target practice and bombing um, so much that the water table of the island was actually cracked. Oh so my it's goodness. Uh, not, you know, permanently inhabitable. Um, and so they, along with many others in the late 1970s, began to make these unsanctioned landings on the island, which then later turned into sanctioned landings and agreements and you know, eventually lead to the stopping of the bombing of the island. So they are now, you know, three of them are still alive. The way the book started uh, was that in conversations I was having with a couple of them, they were interested in having their stories preserved for future generations in different ways, talked about, you know, the potentials of writing things down and I just sort of saw myself really as like a midwife to help <laughs> <That's> <laughs> birth a... their stories onto the page you know mm -hmm. um, 
and each of them had curated their own memories and in some cases physical ephemera or photos um, from those times for for decades when we started doing a project and so it was an opportunity for them also to um, share pull some of those out you know relive some of those memories and um, share them with a new generation of their own families as well yeah, yeah. and it was very um, I loved the pictures uh, aspect of the the book and also just how um, the different anecdotes that they shared and their reflections mm-hmm. after many years right it was kind of rewarding to hear their voice and yeah in those ways and a treat really you know mm-hmm. to tie that to the significant historical events right let's talk about them each in turn because your book features them one at a time and in a biographical narrative form. We'll start with Edwina Moanike Ela Akaka. Mm-hmm. Um, she talked about her family's forcible move to economically survive, how she spent part of her youth in mainland United States. She was one of the first to teach about Hawaiian struggles in ethnic studies and what that experience was like. She returned and was a key leader in opposing the eviction of communities from Kalama Valley for land development. I wondered if you could talk about the decades-long struggle to protect Kalama Valley and Edwina's role in that fight. Yeah, so we call her Auntie Moani Ke'ala or Auntie Moani. And as she shares in her story, she grew up in Kaimuki, which is not far from where we are today. But then her family um, moved to actually, as part of the you know sort of military interconnections, um, she moved to California with her ohana and um, spent her teen years there and then returned to Hawaii and became involved in a struggle that Haunani K. Trask calls the birth of the modern Hawaiian movement. So in 1970, residents, students here from the University of Hawaii and many others um, got together to support the families in a place called Vava Malu or Avava Malu that developers were then beginning to call Kalama Valley, where the suburban sprawl was, you know, sort of inching out beyond Honolulu. These various places which had previously been agricultural areas, um, some Kanaka Native Hawaiians, but also, you know, multi-ethnic tenant farmers, pig farmers, were being evicted for the creation of what's now, uh, you know, sort of upper middle class housing development and so she and others were involved with organizing and support to support the community and ultimately occupying um, with residents who were refusing to move and so in the her chapter she writes about the um, occupations in the in the valley and how the activists there, some of the organizers from UH Ethnic Studies in particular, um, had also been involved and connected with um, radical and progressive movements on the U.S. continent, um, including the Young Lords and the Black Panthers and others um, who were, you know, really talking about community self-determination and So that was uh, important in informing a number of the women, not all of them, but particularly Auntie Moani Keala, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and that just became one of many land struggles that she then uh, became involved in. But for her, when we were working on her chapter, that was one that she felt was critical because it was such an early um, land struggle in what we now think of as the Hawaiian movement. Yeah. And so it was important for her to be able to give that first person perspective for what it was like to be in the valley. Yeah, so as you said, Kalama Valley was not the only struggle she was part of. She was also part of a grassroots movement on the big island regarding the Hilo airport and obtaining proper compensation for those kicked off their homestead land. Um, Edwina talks about the legal battle, but also the risks that she and others took in protesting on the land. She also talks about creating a nuclear-free Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how land development and harmful uses have shaped her life and those in the Hawaiian sovereignty movement? Yeah, so what we think of today as the Hawaiian sovereignty movement really has always had land at the center and the relationship between Kanaka and Aina. Um, that the way that Native Hawaiians think about who we are is in relation with Aina, who are our ancestors as much as they are, you know, um, the natural environment that gives us life, right? So she was involved in the Hilo airport struggle in the later 70s, so around the same time as Kaho'olawe is happening. One of the other big struggles that begins to take place in various parts of the islands are Hawaiians who are saying, you know, the federal government, the state government have responsibilities in their own law around the Native Hawaiian um, Department of Hawaiian Homelands. So under the 1921 Hawaiian Homes Commission Act, of the 1.4 million acres that were seized from the Hawaiian Kingdom, uh, crown and government lands at the time of the U.S. takeover. A mere 200,000 were sort of uh, put in trust as part of the Hawaiian Homes Trust and even then it was designated only for folks who have um, you know, the quote-unquote 50% blood quantum. Yeah. So it imposed a racist definition of what who would count as the Native Hawaiian beneficiaries of that trust. Now, even with that eroded um, amount of land and this racist definition of who counts, um, there still were, by the 70s, major breaches of trust in terms of actually getting Hawaiians qualified on those lands. Um, and there had been takings of the lands for different purposes, such as airports with no compensation back to the Hawaiian Homes uh, Commission and, and Trust. So one major thrust within her activism, but then also her later life as a public official, as a trustee of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, was to um, remedy those breaches of trust. And so in the case of the Hilo Airport, uh, what residents of that area were doing was to actually go and occupy the runway of the Hilo Airport. And so she talks about in her story what it was like for them to um, gather and then march down to the airport and push the fences down and <laughs> stand on a runway, yeah. I mean, which is, you know, it's, for us today, just kind of unthinkable. It is unthinkable. With, yeah. <laughs> like, I wouldn't even know where to go or how to, how to do that, right? Yeah. 
you know, they were incredibly brave and courageous and using all of the sort of tools in their toolboxes as far as, you know, legal advocacy and direct action. Um, and I, I did enjoy education. her account of being in court. It was very, <laughs> mm -hmm. it made me laugh a little bit about how she was able to charm different people in the courtroom and things like that, even though she was very um, steadfast in her position, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she was, um, I really enjoyed that chapter. The second person that you collaborate with is Loretta Ann Kawahineha. Aheyo Herrera Reach. One of the things I loved about this part of the book was how you feature her as a past uh, Miss Hawaii, mm -hmm. 1966, and yeah. how that <laughs> informed her activism. I've long been fascinated with the aesthetics and how feminism tries to reconcile itself with the debates and divisions of the ideas of beauty and body. And in this chapter, Loretta talks about her experience in pageants as shedding light on exploitation, but on how identity is formed, how people form preconceived ideas of who you are. I wondered if you could talk more about how this worked to explain how Hawaiian women and their image and performances, particularly in the way she talked about dancing in hotels, mm -hmm. is a contested place and how Loretta gained from that experience in her activism. So, Auntie Loretta Riddy, um, she grew up on Kauai, which is you know a less populated island right next to Oahu, and she's a fair-skinned, light-haired uh, kanaka. So that had a double-edged sword for her, I think. You know, on one hand, in the '60s, um, she was seen as a very conventional, you know, by American standards, beauty. She's a and by any standard, I think she's just absolutely gorgeous. She is. The pictures are, <laughs> yeah. you just have to admire her. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they all are. They're all just amazingly beautiful. Um, but, you know, it also for her was experienced as it was, she was always being questioned as to whether she was Native Hawaiian and how much. It also reproduces that narrative of blood quantum, or yes, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, Native Hawaiians have a certain sort of phenotype, you know. Yeah. And, but she loved hula. She danced hula since she was um, young. It was uh, genealogical, you know, knowledge that was passed in her family. Um, and yet, at that time, as tourism starts to grow in the wake of 1959. Uh, declaration by the U.S. of 50th statehood of Hawaii that um, and jet travel that there's you know this growth of tourism even further and so a lot of folks were drawn into either one of these two major industries right either the U.S. military or tourism and you know there's been amazing um, feminist theorizing around the connections right between you know, tourism and tourism for and, sure so she, anyway, um, talks about how she was raised to believe that you're supposed to be a wife and you know you're supposed to just stay at home and be beautiful and yeah. do all the things. And, um, but that in the, con in, the, um, in the process of participating in these pageants, she realizes how the women are just really being exploited to project a certain beautiful exoticized image of Hawaii and um, in the course of that 
time though she meets uh, Uncle Walter Reddy, her husband, and um, he is involved at that time with actions um, to protect Aina, to protect access to subsistence, farmers, uh, fishers, hunters on Molokai and um, they end up falling in love and she moves to Molokai and then um, just really sees a different way of living and mm -hmm. decides to get involved in all kinds of activism throughout her life. So the other thing that's common about all these four women is that they not only were each involved in these early landings on Koho'olawe, but they spent the rest of their lives yeah. till today, you know, engaged in activism around land and water protection, um, around demilitarization, peace and justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a common thread between mm -hmm. all of them. Lorena's narrative also features Ohana Kupuna. I loved how she said, and that's how the Ohana was. If you know you have to get up in the middle of the night, you get up in the middle of the night. And she also said, when you go someplace, the kapuna always checks on you and watch you. Can you explain uh, what Ohana and kapuna means and why they are an important aspect of the movement and sovereignty? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, anyone seen Lilo and Stitch, right? They have, <laughs> there's that very trite, um, Ohana means family and family means nobody left, gets left behind or something like that. But really, Ohana is a different way of honoring the vast network of extended family relations that really expand and obliterate in some ways, you know, the nuclear family model that it yeah. really uh, shows from a Hawaiian cultural perspective how... It's like expanded ideas of care and relationships yeah. of, of obligation in some ways, right? Yeah, yeah. yes, for sure. And multi-generational, you know, mm -hmm. that the, the elders, the kupuna, are um, revered, respected uh, leaders and uh, guides within that larger structure. So with the Protect Koho Olave movement, they originally had called themselves the Protect Koho Olave association and protect Koho'olawe fund uh, but the elders said no we need to rename ourselves as an ohana because what we are is um, this extended family who are protecting together and so um, I love the part of the story where she talks about how the elders would invite the leaders who were target you know honestly yeah. targets um to come and when they would camp over on the beach to sleep in the, in the middle and then the elders would sleep around them mm -hmm. so that uh, they could it is be a protected. beautiful yeah. image yeah. yeah Loretta also speaks about living in Pelikunu Valley for a few years with her family and how it made her think of Aloha Aini today mm -hmm. about loving our place can you talk about the contemporary struggles that she and others are focusing on now trying to instill a practice of Aloha Aina well, maybe if I can start by just saying a little bit more about Pelekunu character. Yeah. So one of my favorite parts of her story is where she talks about the couple of years that they spent on the north shore of Molokai in a valley called Pelekunu, which is um, was at one time prior to Western contact, it was uh, a thriving you know, area of Hawaiian um, life, but has become um, 
much more remote today because there is no electricity, there's no um, running water. But after the loss of two of the, um, the deaths of two of the leaders in the Proteco Olave movement um, and a lot of you know, internal strife because of those deaths, uh, she and Uncle Walter and a few other folks decided to get away and move back there. And she talks about that part of it was to seek solace, but another part of it also was, okay, if we're going to really be um, taking these kinds of actions, we want to live as our kupuna did. We want to try to get as close to them as we can. Such a principled way. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so they went and literally built their homes uh, from natural materials. There's a photo in there where she's sitting with one of her babies. She had two daughters already and a small son, toddler, and then she was pregnant and had a baby while she was. they were living in the valley. And there was no way to get out of the valley except by boat or occasionally a helicopter would come by. So very remote. Yeah, <laughs> it was very, very remote, yeah. So she talks about how uh, it was a beautiful place, that it was a good place if you listened to the Aina, and it was a bad place if you didn't. And it was a way for her to you know, connect with land and um, the elders who are embodied in our various elements there. So that's one of my favorite parts of her story is what life was like for them there. Yeah, it is. It, it seemed like a sanctuary and it seemed very beautiful the way she talked about raising her children there. You know, I think a whole overarching arc of that book that you collaborated with these women are is just, um, you know, an urging on, to continue the practice of aloha. Yeah. You know? and, and whether you can comment on that, like what are the ways in which the struggles continue with regards to that? Yeah. The Kaho'olawe movement brings back this ethic, this practice, this driving force for Kanaka called Aloha Aina that is uh, crudely translated as love for the land or love like the land. But it really means so many more things than that. And it was a way that Hawaiians of the 19th century expressed their absolute commitment to maintaining political independence in the wake of US imperial incursions um, is rooted in these deep and intimate connections with each other and with with our lands and waters, as um, Heoli Osorio writes in her book, Remembering mm -hmm. Our Intimacies. And yeah. She really says so beautifully how um, Aloha Aina continues to be this absolute driving force for our movements um, and for who we are as, as Native Hawaiians. Um, but for Auntie Loretta, anyway, that has meant being involved with um, protecting the opportunities for people on her island where she's living to continue to have those connections with their mm -hmm. places and with each other whether it's um, because of threats by massive um, biotech companies mm -hmm. who are growing genetically modified seed corn on their islands or um, big industrial 
wind projects on their islands. Um, the, the movements have always been about the community there on Molokai, where she lives, um, continuing to be able to make decisions for themselves mm -hmm. and, and to feed themselves from their lands. And, and informed by the, the, what they know of the land, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. The third woman you collaborate with is Mary Maxine Lani Soares Andrade Kahaulileo. And she talks about, um, you know, a few tragedies in her life, losing two brothers in Vietnam and how her husband was a drug addict and how she carries all of this in the activist work she does. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about her, her personal struggles raising five children, her experience with her husband leading to the creation of a welfare coalition. She talks about how this coalition led to the lowering of electric bills, work against evictions and homelessness. She sounds so dynamic given the struggles in her life and I have no words for how she was able to do such dynamic work with all of that in her life. So. Yes, she's just an absolute firecracker and riot to be with. Um, and as you mentioned, had you know suffered through these incredible tragedies um, in her young life, but never got to a point where those tragedies defeated her. She was somehow able to find the fight, you know. Um, so she describes, for example, the death of both of her brothers and her challenging her own family, you know, saying like, my brothers didn't have to die this way. They weren't born to hold a gun. They were, you know, it really entitled her. to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think for many of them, you know, these women who are radicalized or I don't even know if they would describe it as radicalized I don't think all of them would but that they they saw it as a choice I think one thing that I would say between all of them is that they saw it as a choice between life or death you know mm -hmm. that um, what are the systems the institutions the ways of living that bring life to themselves their families their people and what are the systems and institutions and practices that inflict death and inflict death unevenly on different For sure. people's different bodies, right? So she uh, enters the movements really from a class perspective, For you know, sure. as a single mom raising kids on her own, uh, very little help with just the basic needs of life and as you mentioned she establishes and organizes with a welfare coalition she also organizes with other hawaiians who are supporting um, multi-ethnic communities that are facing gentrification in places like chinatown she tells this really fun story of um going with uh, an organizer of her generation named um, who was organizing with folks in Chinatown who were opposing gentrification, but particularly in the story, they're um, going into the Glades, which was a Mahu uh, nightclub, transgender performance. Um, and that, you know, they were supporting this community and trying to save and protect this space. And so, yeah. but the story is like 
her just delight in being in the Well, she space. sounds like an extrovert and <laughs> yeah, she would have she been totally fun is. to hang out with, I think, yeah, right? Yeah. Like very dynamic. Yeah, she totally is still to this day. But much of her work has been also since since Kaho'olawe around um, demilitarization. Yeah, and it's yeah. a huge contrast. I really admired how she talked about this because she talks about how her family, you know, uh, has conflicting views about this because of the fact that her brother served in the mm -hmm. military. So to be honest and critical of that yeah. is all the more hard for someone like her, right? Mm -hmm. Maxine was also one of two litigants suing the military to ensure they complied with the terms of a lease of ceded lands at Pohakuloa training area. Can you talk about what she accomplished in this lawsuit and also her narrative of what transpired in the courtroom? Sure. I actually, uh, maybe it's because yeah. I'm a lawyer. I just found that it, her personality really came out in this part yes. of the book. The movement to protect Kaho'olawe was successful in stopping the bombing and also getting the Navy to return the island by the 90s to the state of Hawaii. However, the military um, industrial complex, you know, continued to need land. And so um, there was a large taking of land at Pohakulo on the big island of Hawaii, which is actually a si larger than the size of Kaho'olawe, where live fire training continues to this day. Wow. And um, that area is anti-Maxine had relocated to Hawaiian homelands. She, you know, was one of um, the few on the waiting list for Hawaiian homelands who eventually got awarded after many, many years of waiting and relocated herself to Waimea, which is um, near the Pohapula training area. And people who live there um, talk about the same kinds of experiences that those who began to organize against Kaho'olawe's um, use for military training did, which is that, you know, bombs going off, um, the land shaking at night. Oh, that's awful. Um, toxic chemicals in the mm -hmm. soil, right? And so what she and Uncle Clarence Ku Ching uh, did was to actually sue the state for failing to properly regulate the activities by the army and um, because of the depositing of things like depleted uranium among other things in the soils that you know, this was a breach of public trust and so they were successful in that lawsuit um, and she talks yeah about what it was like to be in the courtroom and as i said just really asserting who she is as a Hawaiian and um, calling, she is not afraid to call people out. And, uh, yeah, I admire yeah. that in her story. I really, it was inspiring personally yeah. to read that. The final chapter is about Tara Lee Napua Keiko Olani Raymond. Um, and she was informed by growing up around her mother and cousins who were all hula dancers and her dad, who played in a band at night while attending architecture school all on the mainland. She talks about the influence of being born on the mainland and returning, how it informed her identity as a Hawaiian woman. Can you talk about her experience looking at her birth certificate and what her father taught her about being proud and how her mother acclimatized her back to the island when they moved back? Yeah, so she um, 
was surprised at one point to, as, as a Native Hawaiian woman and someone who's, you see her picture in the, in the book, she's, you know, dark-skinned, dark-haired, um, but when she found her birth certificate, it said white, and she was like, what is this? <laughs> you know, what is going on here, mom? Um, but her mom shared that while they were living in the Bay Area, you know, there were, these were segregated hospitals, and so to be able to get healthcare, a, a degree of, yeah, healthcare, she basically tried to you know, pass as white and was able to be enough in that hospital um and so i think it was a really interesting time for her to grow up in that area um, until she was in her kind of like pre-teens um, with her dad being in architecture school but playing at night her mom was a police officer during the day and a hula dancer in the clubs at at night and so she grew up in this really rich performance environment um, and she talks about how you know like we were talking earlier about the pressures and the um, sort of dominant understanding of what it meant to be beautiful mm-hmm. um, that were very much you know, related to white supremacy so her mom having internalized some of that you know uh, used to have her put a clothespin on her nose and she is walking around the house with the clothespin on her nose and her dad comes up to her and she's just a little girl comes up to her and takes the clothespin off her nose and throws it onto the ground and just kisses her on the nose and said you have a beautiful Hawaiian nose you have to understand that your features as a Hawaiian woman are, are beautiful. Your dark features are beautiful. And then it's she such talks. a beautiful story. It is. Yes. Every time I read it, I, I tear up. I, I definitely tear up. <laughs> I, just, I just had, so, yeah, it was just so emotional and beautiful. Like, that was such a touching moment such to be able to tender, share. tender, yeah, yeah, way that he addressed that. You know, and she also was clear that she wasn't mad at her mom for doing that to her mm-hmm. like she understood late this is later in life you know reflecting back she understood that these were internalized yeah that you know these were features of colonization yeah right? yeah right yeah. he surrounds her with pictures of Hawaiian women so that she can see herself reflected in the images around her in ways that she wasn't in popular media yeah that is so powerful it's amazing it's an amazing parental choice that her father Mm -hmm. did to do that and very beautiful i have to say i also thought it was really nice how her she talks about how when she came back to the island it could have been very difficult for her to kind of adjust but her mom just like put her around her cousins and family and i just thought that was really thoughtful too like the way that her parents guided her and her was just yeah, a, it's just reinventing a her back in the extended ohana yeah. that we talked about. Yeah, Tara Lee honors her mentors and teachers and talking about her influences in her political thinking and exposures to things like the Black movement. But she also recognizes she is a middle-class young woman and she wanted to understand the life of a working-class person in the pineapple fields. And so she got a job there 
which is something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wondered if you could talk about that. Like, and I think that's a common feature amongst all the women. They always go back to the community and mm -hmm. learn and, and participate, right? And learn through experience. But she really goes back to the community and how this informed not only her work, but like cultural practices in terms of what she wanted to understand. Yeah. So she's very much um, shaped by, you know, a, a class analysis from a young age. She's involved with the ethnic studies program here at UH Manoa in those early days as well. And as you mentioned, you know, she feels at that time motivated by wanting to not just be an organizer who tries to impart knowledge to others, but really to learn, as you, as you said, like, learn through the embodied experiences of what was it like for these folks who are working ridiculously long days in pineapple fields, it's hot, it's dangerous. Um, and so she, yeah, goes and begins not just getting a, like young people, young working class, folks my mom did when she, when she was the, got jobs in the canneries mm -hmm. but she was like I'm not just gonna go get a job in a cannery I'm gonna actually even go a step further than that <laughs> and work in the actual field so um, she talks about how the work was really backbreaking but one of the things that they did was they um, broke the the pineapple picking machine so mm -hmm. that was one of the you know, organizing kind of tactics that they utilized so um, clever yeah <laughs> and so that was a big part of her early training I really liked how she ran into her uncle too and he's like what are you doing here yeah. there's a reason why we're working here so you don't have to kind of thing yeah. and it reminded me of like my dad also <laughs> when he realized I was going back to Asia he's like no you don't have to go back there. there's a reason why I brought you here <laughs> it's funny how generations try to keep you yeah. away from things. Terrell Lee talks about critical thinking in ethnic studies at UH was useful but you know, as you said, she really wanted to kind of go outside the classroom, outside the ivory tower. And I think her chapter was pivotal in showing that political thinking and identity um, was um, shaped by Kahu Olawe. Can you explain what Kahu Olawe is and how it challenged her idea about her community practices and struggle for demilitarization? Yeah, so, so Auntie Terry, as well as Auntie Maxine, you know, came to the Kaho Olave movement, the movement to stop the bombing of that island, um, from this more uh, class analysis and class organizing, whether like welfare moms or um, laborers or multi-ethnic, you know, tenant farmers who are getting kicked off their lands and then when they get involved with Kaho Olave it really connects them in a deeper way to their identities as native Hawaiians as Kanaka Maoli and some of the folks who are leading in that movement and the elders who were really providing guidance there were trying to give Young, the young Hawaiians like them at that time, um, connections back to our kupuna, to our elders, through ceremony, through songs, through 
prayers. Um, so one of the main kind of um, elements of the, that, that movement was to really reestablish a ceremonial, a ritual relationship with the island and with the Akua. Um, Akua is a word that is sometimes translated as God, but that's a very imperfect translation. <laughs> um, so re-establishing religious and ceremonial practices was really, really important. And so what they did, um, some of the some of the kupuna that she encounters, you know, challenge her about okay, how do we organize in a way that is consistent with our culture? So not to say that, you know, these other tactics that she was learning from um, the other sorts of activism and organizing that she was doing weren't um, valuable or effective, but that they weren't always reflective of who we are as Kanaka. Yeah. Um, and so she really gets challenged and takes that challenge to heart and self-reflects on how she can be, mm-hmm. um, use her political practice as a way to deepen her own connection with who she is as a Kanaka. There are so many other questions I have, but I thought a good one to tie the threads together would be, what do all of these women have in common? What are the core principles, ideas you want people to take away from their activism, their stories, their principled approach to uh, Alohaina? Um, and also, just um, what does it tell us about indigenous feminism? How how is that different from mainstream feminism? You know. Yeah. Well, I, one way that I wanted to answer this question was just to read a section of um, Auntie Loretta's story because I think it so well captures what drives each of them and what has driven so many of. Oh, us as uh, Wahine, as Kanaka Maoli, and even broader beyond Hawaii as um, indigenous peoples who are protecting lands and our relationship with lands and waters. Auntie Loretta says, Aina is our life. It's not just a commodity. There's a rampant greed on this earth I don't know the answer, but I am just believing in our keiki, in our mo'opuna, in our people throughout different cultures to help others wake up. In the Pacific, people are already doing that because we are islands. Other people don't give a rip about what happens to us with global warming. They don't care if we get covered over because they get big land masses and they're gonna do what they like do. So we gotta stand up and we gotta fight. We gotta fight. It's not a personal fight against individuals. It's toward the mentality of so many people who are not thinking life. They're thinking money, they're thinking dollars. So we gotta fight, we gotta stand up. We gotta fight for this Aina because we only have one earth. I cannot go out and fight into, I cannot go out into the world and fight the world. I can stay right here on Moloka'i and fight for Ho'olehua, fight for La'au. I can go to Maui and help Lana'i. We can fight for Haloa. We got to see the value of our local communities and fight for them with our resources so we can survive. So I think one of the things that 
each of these women um, has taught me is that struggle makes life meaningful. Mm -hmm. That even in dark times, um, organizing, organizing with like-minded peoples is absolutely necessary. And the second part of the question was about indigenous feminisms. I mean, so one of the things was that while I identify as an indigenous feminist, I wouldn't necessarily say that these four women in, mm -hmm. you know, each identify as feminists. I think they all recognize the centrality of um, women in our nation, in our Lahui, our, you know, for Native Hawaiian people that all genders are critically important and as Terry says um, something about I don't know if I call myself a feminist but I'm not at all afraid of men basically <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that what indigenous feminisms provide are both a tireless critique of empire and of the ways that empire seeks to sever and distort relationships that communities, collective um, groups have with their lands and waters and with each other. Um, and that empire absolutely functions through perpetuating heteropatriarchy. Um, and indigenous feminisms also insist on a collective orientation to restoring balance and peace that is not about individual rights as much as it is, as it is empowering collective communities where um, all gendered folks are valued. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I love, we talked right at the beginning about how uh, Dr. Jamaica Osorio's book, Remembering Our Intimacies, uh, does such a beautiful job of articulating why restoring the abundance of different ways of showing our aloha for each other in through you know various embodiments uh, is absolutely necessary to restoring our air uh, or our autonomy, you know, mm -hmm. our health, our life, our breath that um, that sustain us. Right? That sustain us. Yeah. 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 Um, and maybe just because I was just thinking of this as you were talking, it's just such a beautiful, you know, approach and philosophy to to work um, and to thinking forward, looking about where we go as people. But, you know, I'm primarily a migration scholar and I'm just thinking about, like, how do you conceive of doing this work knowing um, that some people don't have that same connection or who may be here long term but you know i'm not one of those people but how do you balance that with people who um are allies or who want to contribute or and i know there's some you know there's interesting narratives within the book that talks about that a, a little bit but um how do you talk about welcoming people into the community or border shifting or i'm just yeah. curious about that i think 
this also for me comes from indigenous feminist theorizing but thinking really about accountabilities and how mm. to hold um, each other's stories and to care for those intimacies and accountabilities um, and so one way I think of, about that is the the distinction that um, for example like Eve Tuck folks make between settler and immigrant right like their settlers come with a, a sovereignty that is imposed upon indigenous or first peoples mm -hmm. um and so from a hawaiian native hawaiian perspective the way that i think about it is you know how can we ask the questions of how can we accountable be accountable to each other so how can we one um, learn about the stories of what bring people who have, you know, been forced for various reasons, right, to leave their homes. Why do they arrive on these shores, you know? Um, for example, you know, Marshall Islanders whose mm -hmm. homes have been targeted in generations um, not long past by nuclear testing. Right. And for whom, you know, those ongoing nuclear legacies are still causing rampant cancers um so how do we how do we one like welcome each other into spaces so that we can share the stories of how we find ourselves mm. here in these same places how can those who are newer are newer arrivals you know um value and respect and be accountable to the existing um, sovereignties and culture of the, of the first peoples and then also for for us as indigenous peoples here in Hawaii how can we um, be accountable to welcoming you know folks who like I mentioned need need to for various reasons so I again I'm thinking a lot about it in terms of our brothers and sisters of the Pacific Islands who are um, have been targeted by the same imperialisms that the military we, structures yeah, yeah. right that um particularly in in the this time of climate change you know and yeah. sea level rise i mean it's things are going to be there's going to be a lot more movement right for sure yes well thank you for that i just i mean i think what you said about accountability and respect really goes a long way right and the, the, can be guiding forces to how people interact with one another I just want to thank you for your time on this rainy day with, um, you know, other obligations in your life. But, you know, I really loved your book and uh, it was I think it was the first book I finished reading while um, here in Hawaii. And it was a beautiful entree into uh, my time. Here. Well, thank, so thank you, you for uplifting their stories. You know, it's not my book. It's really ours. Like I mentioned, it's, it's their stories. They've lived the, the lives and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to amplify. Migration Conversations is hosted by me, Professor Jamie Liu, and produced by U Ottawa Faculty of Law student Marina Breton. This podcast series in Hawaii is made possible by Fulbright Canada and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Mahalo to my guests for sharing their stories.